The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live at an energy forum hosted by Capital Weekly on Wednesday, November 17th. This is the second panel of the day on the topic of the future of the grid. And this panel was moderated by journalist Sophia Balag of the Sacramento Bee. Support for Capital Weekly's Energy Forum was provided by TASSEN, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. And we'll get started with the program now. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Capital Weekly's Energy Forum. This is the second panel of the day. This is on the future of the grid. Uh, We have all lived through the last few years where the grid has been extremely stressed. We've seen uh, PG&E in bankruptcy, now out of bankruptcy, but uh, the future of that has been questioned. I know the Sacramento Bee editorial board, uh, has suggested that PG&E be broken up. Uh, maybe uh, Sophia Balag, our, uh, our moderator, can speak to that, although I know there is the editorial side and the reporting side are different. But uh, I think we have a lot to talk about. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn you over to Sophia and to our panelists. Thanks again. And if you have any questions, please put them in the Q&A function, and we will get those at the end of the hour. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks so much, Tim. And yeah, as so as a reporter, I don't have anything to do with the editorial board, have no say in any of their editorials, but I will be, hopefully we'll have time during this hour to uh, see what our, our panelists think of, um, you know, what the editorial board said the other week. Um, but just to start off, um, I'm hoping each of you can um, take a couple of minutes to introduce yourselves and, uh, you know, give us your thoughts uh, or a preview of your thoughts rather on, on the future of the grid. Um, so uh, if you guys don't mind, I'll go ahead and start with Assemblyman Chris Holden. Thank you. Well, first of all, uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for inviting me to, to be a part of the panel and certainly the issue of uh, energy and uh, how the utilities uh, provide that uh, resource to the customers is very important. Um, and, and I'm just uh, pleased to, to be with you. And certainly as the chair of the Assembly Committee on Utility and Energy, I represent uh, in the Assembly the San Gabriel Valley, Pasadena as the home base. And I'm into uh, completing my ninth year uh, thereabouts. Yeah. So it, time is going by very quickly. But the issues are, that we're dealing with in this space um, uh, continue to to be front and center, and uh, we've always been very uh, conscientious about making sure that the legislation we put forward is aggressively moving us towards our renewable energy goals under SB 100, uh, but also trying to be very smart and pragmatic about how we do it so that it doesn't uh, create an over impact on on the ratepayers. Um, as we you know all know that for over a century. The grid was pretty basic. Uh, site generation as close to load as possible. Gas plants with transmission to bring in a few remote resources like geothermal, uh, nuclear, and to address weather fluctuations. However, in the last 15 years, we have up- upended 
that approach and now need more transmission to get to renewable fuel sources such as wind and solar and to address fluctuations in the availability of those resources and the increasing impacts of climate change, particularly evidenced by heat storms. It calls for a new approach to the grid, which I think should and will lead to regionalization of our electric grid, moving beyond our borders and shared transmission planning and dispatching of resources with states around the West to ensure that we meet our climate goals in the most reliable and efficient manner possible. The future of the grid is a broad topic with many facets, but fundamentally, the discussion has to include reliability. People don't like it when the lights go off and it's our job to keep the lights on. So I'm pleased to be a part of the conversation today. Great, thank you so much. Um, and now we'll go to Stacy Crowley, the Vice President of External Affairs for the California Independent System Operator. Good morning, Sophia, and all those folks listening in, I appreciate being included here today. Um, and uh, really think this is an important topic on the future of the grid. I just wanted to touch briefly on the status of the, of the energy system where it sits today, and then move into some of our market tools and acknowledge the sea change that's happening here in the West. And, and um, Chair Holden mentioned that a bit. So California has remained on track to meet its energy goals, striving for that 100% by 2045. For a brief moment, uh, in, uh, on April 24th of this year, we had an astonishing 94.5% of the electricity on the ISO grid um, served by renewables. And that was a record that was broken from just a month ago at, uh, before that at 92.5%. So these are glimpses into the future of how renewable energy can, can serve our grid. And we have seen how the introduction of much higher percentage of the clean energy resources, such as the solar and wind resources, has really changed the way the electric grid is operated. We generally see ample supply during the middle of the day, and that's with the abundant solar resources that we have here. And then we see a more steep decline in that supply as the sun goes down, requiring the remaining wind, natural gas, and imports to fill that need. To help that situation in the evening, the state is also adding lithium ion battery storage capacity at really unprecedented levels. Last summer, we had about 250 megawatts of battery storage on the grid. We are on track to have over 3000 megawatts by the end of this year on the grid. And we're now seeing that these storage resources are performing as we had hoped and providing that energy back to the grid at those critical hours. We're on tap to get even more clean energy resources over the next several years through some of the CPC dockets um, and other procurement. And we're doing a lot of good work, but as Chair Holden said, we need desperately need more transmission um, to build and accommodate those new resources and important technology improvements that really make sure that the grid that was designed um, in a much different era is modernized to accommodate all of that renewable energy storage and, and um, renewable energy and storage that's coming on. And it's sort of in this context of a, of a massive amounts of new renewable generation, um, decreasing units that had that rotating mass that kept things moving that was used by conventional generation, the serious impacts of climate change, and really the inefficiencies of a Western grid that is managed by 38 different authorities 
um, that is at the heart of the work that we've been doing to create um, the successful energy and balance market in the West that will soon be um, uh, represented in over 10 states and serve nearly 80% of the load in the West and go further to explore the day ahead market opportunities in the West. So we have a lot of um, positive momentum on some of the market tools that we can offer, but we do need to do more and recognize the, the sense of urgency that a lot of folks are seeing, not only in California, but around the West. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks so much. And now we'll go to Carla Peterman, the Executive Vice President for Corporate Affairs and Chief Sustainability Officer for PG&E. Thanks, Sophia. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to be with you today. So when I think about how the grid is evolving and changing, I think about climate change. I think about how climate change is just changing all of the energy system. It's changing how much energy we use, what we use energy for, where we get our energy from, and how we deliver energy. So pretty much everything. Um, I think on a positive note, we've seen this coming as a state, as a utility sector, and we've been investing in clean energy and grid improvements um, over the years. Now, climate change is taking on different forms. It's having more intense impacts than we might have imagined. And so we have to be nimble and we have to keep evolving. And I think that's part of the discussion today. So just to break that down a little bit, in terms of changing in demand, we're seeing increased heat is driving increased need for energy. You know, I recall very clearly about four years ago having a baby in San Leandro and hitting 106 degrees and realizing, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I had air conditioning? And I never in my time of living in the Bay Area thought I needed air conditioning, right? I think you're starting to see people realize that. So we're seeing that increased need for electricity, for cooling needs. We're also seeing changing needs for what we use the energy for. So we are investing in electric vehicles and building electrification as a way to um, help mitigate climate change. In PG&E's territory, 20% of the EVs in the country are in our territory. So we need more energy to meet those needs. It's also changing where we actually get our energy from. Um, not only the solar and wind investments um, that Chair Holden and Stacy talked about, but also even our hydro supply. PG&E manages one of the largest networks of hydroelectric energy in the country. And this year with the drought, we saw the water in our hydro watersheds being below 50% of normal. So we're having to replace that type of generation with new types of generation. We're also seeing it impact how we deliver energy. Um, one of the consequences of climate change is severe wildfire threat conditions, the combination of heat, drought, also the changing impact to tree species. In our territory alone, we've seen the high fire threat area grow from 15% to 50% of our territory. One third of our power lines are in high fire threat areas. That's totally changing the relationship between power lines and trees as we're delivering to our customers in remote areas. So that's requiring us to look at how do we harden the system to be able to, um, um, yeah, be able to deliver power during wildfires. It also has us bringing other tools into the tool set. For example, we're looking at microgrids. We've invested in remote microgrids in areas that are hard to serve. I think you know, where ultimately this all leads to, it changes our planning. How we're planning for the grid is evolving. We're including climate change projections. 
we're thinking about how do we address multiple issues, uh, reliability at the same time as clean energy. Um, and uh, we are also being really aware of what investments do we need to make now, given where we see climate projections going in the future. I'll just end with one anecdote that as we've been looking at um, you know, transmission towers in San Francisco around the Bay, one of the questions you know, as we're looking at is what is going to be the sea level rise, for example, predicted? And our model showed that there would be a three foot increase in the sea level rise around the coast. And so we added three feet to the base of the equipment we're replacing now, because at 50 years, we don't want to have to deal with that issue again. So it's really just looking ahead on a much longer term trajectory to make sure we're making informed investments now. Thanks so much. And now we'll go to Amisha Rai, the Managing Director of Advanced Energy Economy. Thanks, Sophia. And it's great to be on this panel with the rest of these esteemed speakers. Um, And hello to everyone out there that's listening in and tuning in. Um, Advanced energy economy, we represent the very broad spectrum of technologies across the board. So large scale renewables, um, clean energy resources that are on the distributed side, energy efficiency, the the, the whole spectrum, including uh, transportation technologies such as EVs and sort of the supply chain that's attached to that. So I'm really excited to be here for this conversation because it's very relevant to the the conversations we have with our members on a daily basis in terms of how does this entire system work together? When I I think about sort of the future of the grid and um, what we need to be thinking about, it's, it's, what are the needs of the system, right? And and all of these different grid technologies, whether they're large scale, distributed, whether it's on the transportation side, they all need to fit together and they need to be seen as assets to the grid. And we need to figure out the right system to make that happen. Um, a couple of things that we're thinking about as we're we're you know, going deep into this conversation and and has been touched on by a number of the speakers thus far, starting with Assemblymember Holden, um, is the conversation around regionalization, really thinking about how, where California is in that conversation. We're seeing other states in the West really take leadership and thinking about a regional grid and, and really moving toward an RTO of the future for the West and figuring out what that should look like. California has um, every reason to be a part of that conversation conversation. And it's it's really time for us to really think about um, how to, to get involved with our neighbors and thinking about the reliability of the entire Western grid and, and how we can work together with our neighbors. The other sort of bucket that I'd point to is how do we local clean energy resources, right? Again, I think um, Carla mentioned how we need to be thinking about sort of the whole basket uh, of resources and the different tools. She mentioned m- microgrids. You know, we, we need to be thinking about that as part of the grid resiliency solution, right? And, and how we incorporate distributed technologies um, as part of the long-term solution so that we have fewer public power shutoffs so that, that, that local residents can really tap into, um, you know, local, you know, localized storage uh, assets. They can, they can utilize the, the distributed resources that they have in their communities to keep the lights on. Really thinking about how those localized resources could be utilized for uh, community centers, really community hubs to serve the public at times of crisis. So, so that's part of the solution. And then just finally, you know, 
how we think about this pathway towards electrifying everything, which is really where the state is headed, right? We're talking about electrifying transportation across the board, for the most part, all vehicle classes, really looking at electrifying the built environment. As we go into these conversations and make more headway on that, we have to think about what that means for the grid system, what that means on, on uh, in terms of our resources and the demand that it creates. And again, if we if we look at it from a sort of constructive point of view of how those different resources in terms of the, the, the car the car batteries uh, can be an asset to the grid and really think about sort of the regulatory and policy frameworks, the rate signals that we can provide to customers, this can actually all work in a way that that where, where the system is is working for the ratepayer and 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 that is something that we really want to see is that sort of holistic approach to um, thinking about the future of the grid and making sure that we are seeing all of these technologies as part of the system and working together and seeing how that puzzle fits together so that we are maintaining affordability and and reliability while also really aggressively moving forward on our climate and clean energy goals. Great. Thanks so much. Um, so I've, I've written down a lot of notes based on those opening remarks that I want to follow up on. Um, but I think I'll start with um, something that Carla said. Um, you were talking about um, you know, the impacts of climate change broadly on the grid um, and particularly about infrastructure. Um, you know, I know you mentioned the example of the uh, towers in, in San Francisco, but can you give us, um, are there other examples of sort of the, the impact of climate change on the infrastructure of the grid and what needs to be done, you know, in response to that? Sure. And, you know, lots of places I can take that conversation, but I'll first start off and say, one of the things that all the California utilities have been doing are climate vulnerability assessments. Uh, coming out of a proceeding at the Public Utilities Commission, we have been modeling how our assets will be impacted by climate change for over the 10-year, 50-year period. And as we do that analysis, we see that there's impacts from subsidence, drought, flooding. You know, we don't think about the flooding that also is um, predicted to happen, um, heat. And so this can affect infrastructure in a lot of ways, right? It can, certain infrastructure could shift he can affect um, the quality of uh, transmission assets, of power assets. And so we really have to make sure that our equipment is able to sustain real variation in conditions. And so we're taking this vulnerability assessment, integrating it into our planning, again, so that we can be thoughtful about what are the kind of parameters and conditions by which we develop the infrastructure. Um, meanwhile, kind of picking up on what Amisha was talking about, we are investing and really have actually been leading in the country in terms of different types of microgrids within our system. So we have a remote microgrid that we've recently stood up in a community um, that's about supporting not just local resilience, but also can provide standalone power. But then there's flavors of that. There's lots of hybrids. There's the opportunities that were mentioned about having you know, a combination of distributed generation, for example, at community centers in terms of emergencies. You know, we're really proud that this summer we were able to do the first mobile temporary remote generation at a school. You know, being able to put resources in place at those times where the weather conditions are so extreme, we do think shutting off the power is the safest option. We want that to be invisible to customers, right? We still want customers to be able to meet their basic needs. So I think it's a combination of um, making the system more robust to extremes, because that's what we're seeing with climate change, and also being able to meet power needs at different levels, you know, depending on what the conditions are. 
Got it. Um, yeah. If you don't mind, Sophia, I was just going to add, you know, we had um, climate change with those, those extreme heat events. Um, if you recall in June and July, the extreme heat up in British Columbia and Washington and Oregon are one of our major transmission lines that comes from the Northwest down into California, the California, Oregon intertie was derated, meaning it could only, it could serve less flow, energy flow, because of the wildfires happening right around that transmission line. And that really caused some reliability um, concerns for us for several weeks. It was the bootleg fire down in Oregon, if you remember that. So just another example of climate change and the effect on the, on the system. I would just add also piggybacking off of what both Carla and Stacy said, but you know the comments around sort of making sure that the communities communities have access to reliable power, especially when there are these massive grid grid impacts through these uh, these extreme weather events. You know, making sure that when we have sort of these, uh, we develop these sort of mobile microgrids or, or create these these solutions um, that we are tapping into clean energy resources, right? We want to make sure um, that moving forward, we need to be planning ahead that these are going to be more frequent. And so thinking about how we invest in those resources that don't exacerbate local uh, you know, air quality issues, but are really focused in on sort of tapping into the clean energy resources, lo local clean energy resources, or, or creating that capacity so that um, it is aligned with our state goals. It doesn't exacerbate, you know, local clean, you know, the air quality in the in the area, and it's actually, um, you know, a sort of a plus plus for the community as a whole. Assemblyman, I'm I'm also curious about your thoughts on this. I mean, from your perspective, what needs to be done, um, you know, to Harden, or I don't know if harden is quite the right word here, but um, you know, change the infrastructure on the grid to address the impacts of climate change. Well, I think a lot of what you heard is sort of an indication of a sense of urgency, and with the investor-owned utilities really starting to um, invest in the kind of technology and improvements that are going to be necessary to offset what we've already seen uh, is a devastation of wildfires and what those. I mean, I was telling someone the other day, uh, growing up as a kid in California, uh, we'd have somebody dress up as Smokey the Bear and come to our, our school and talk, remind us of how important it is to be safe when in the, in, in the uh, wilderness and, and fire prevention and the importance of fire prevention. Those are back in the days where we had wildfires that uh, just did not do this kind of devastation to our, our state as they are now. Climate change is evident by the fact that we have so much overgrown brush and vegetation that needs to be managed. Um, we have certainly with that increased vegetation and high wind events that are hurricane force winds. I mean, we're to, and, and, and so how do you, and these are things that are sort of gradually building up to where these winds are moving these uh, fires at such speeds that they're just devastating and take paradise as an example or devastating communities uh, in a way that causes us to have to be more aggressive. And I know that with these high wind uh, heat events that we've experienced, especially last year, as Stacy has brought out, that it was very important uh, when we had that, that period of time where we had the rolling blackouts, um, it was very clear from the governor um, on down that that was something that couldn't happen again. It should not happen again. And I think that the three energy entities have worked very closely together, probably more so than they ever have uh, before, uh, to make sure that 
the forecasting and planning is coordinated with uh, procuring of power and resources to help, and as was pointed out, to make sure that it's um, that it's meeting our renewable expectations and standards. And so these are all things that are happening real time and happen. And, and quite frankly, every year has dealt us a different hand. You know, we, we were planning for this year based on the assumptions from last year. And then last year uh, happened in June of this year, in May, June of this year. So um, a lot sooner than we had ever anticipated. And um, the state was on fire all year. Uh, and from that point, until we saw the deluge of rain here recently. So with the utilities, they're investing through their wildfire mitigation plans and making sure that where they can underground, they can underground, vegetation management, hardening the grid, um, weatherization so that they can be, be better prepared to protect higher wind events, to um, segment in such a way that they're not shutting, when it becomes health, it becomes safety for power to be shut down that it's done in a very limited and, and segmented way um, so that there's not a, a, a gross impact on, on customers. Uh, that hasn't been done perfectly. And I think that the uh, utilities will recognize that. It's our job as a, as a committee to provide oversight, to understand what happened, why did it happen, and what can be done uh, better the next time around. And I think that the utilities have worked very closely with the committee and the legislature to try to be very diligent um, in making sure that they are, are, are doing the investment for their mitigation plans, but also are being uh, incredibly responsible when the power does go off. And has it been done perfectly? It has not. Uh, but I think that there is a, a recognition that there is a, a monies that are being invested uh, to make sure that they're in a, a much better place. And as was pointed out by Carla, the uh, utilizing microgrids and other forms of, of uh, storage and other forms of distributed energy resources that can help um, make sure that we're in the best possible place as we, to, to protect the public as we make our way to getting a more solid and robust grid. Because um, we certainly don't want to see, and as we started last year or this year, uh, we saw what happened in Texas, uh, being isolated is not a good thing either. And that's why this regionalization conversation is so important because we need to continue to decarbonize not just California, but all of the Western states so that we're um, making, a, making a real impact uh, on climate change. Got it. Um, and you, you mentioned um, storage there at the end, and I wanted to, to follow up on that. Um, and I want to direct this question, at least at first, to Stacy. Um, what's the ISO doing on, you know, storage and, and what needs to happen to Im improve the grid storage abilities, um, you know, moving forward to improve reliability overall? Certainly. Well, we, we as a state are really charting new territory here. So something to be proud of, but also something that um, hasn't been done before, right? So we're sort of right in the book along the way. Um, and the integration of more storage, and this at the moment it's it's mostly battery storage, but as you know, there's there's other forms of storage that can help sort of offset and capture the energy during the day when we have that surplus and deliver it when we need it um, uh, when the sun sets and beyond. But the storage that we are seeing come on the grid now, we we had to to take some time and and look at the market mechanisms to make sure that they were being incentivized and being encouraged to 
do exactly what we need them to do, right? And that's to be flexible and to and and follow the signals of when we need that energy that they're there and ready for us. We've had um, energy storage in our policy and market design discussions for years, but the past couple of years, we saw this major ramp based on the procurement um, that has been done in the state. And so we, we included stakeholders and utilities and the, and the energy producers in meetings over the past um, many years to really talk about how do you find that balance of providing the incentive um, to get those storage assets to move when we need them to move. So that said, we are, we're doing that. It's going to be an evolving system um, and we will keep sort of testing the boundaries of that system. But uh, for now, we are seeing that the battery storage uh, resources that have come on are performing to, for the most part um, to when we need them the most. And that's in large part due to the market mechanisms that have been put in place. Got it. Um, and I'll just open up the floor there. It, you know, does any, any any of the other panelists want to add anything about storage or um, you know any thoughts about what Stacy was talking about there? I would. I would like to chime in on this and just say, you know, I've personally been working on storage for quite a while. And remember, back in 2013, we had something around 30 megawatts of utility scale storage on the system. Now. This year, PGD will have contracted for almost 2,000 megawatts of energy storage just in our service territory. So there's been a big on-ramp, and we talked about this being the holy grail like eight years ago. Now it is a critical part of our system, and it's really on the margin. I mean, you kind of start from the place of, we'll buy storage. And so we are seeing the real opportunity here. And as we look to um, achieve our state's uh, carbon neutrality goals, storage remains a critical part. As Stacey noted, we are learning. I think this is an example area, though, where other states have followed. I mean, honestly, we have helped to grow and cement storage as an asset that utilities can use across the globe. And ultimately, that has been the challenge, right? We have important reliability goals, affordability goals, clean energy goals, but we need to do and. We can't do or. And we also have trade-offs, but there can't be trade-offs. And so I think what's really exciting about storage is it's also allowed us just to think differently about how you can bring new technologies into our mix, which I think is a good opportunity for us to think about other resources that might come on, carbon capture sequestration, hydrogen, just opening our minds to the fact that even though we haven't been meeting customer needs in one way, it doesn't mean we can't use new technologies to meet them in the future. So I think it's really uh, resulted in a lot of creativity between the industry, utilities, and customers as well. I would just add to that, that obviously it's a game changer if we can increase the duration of battery storage. So certainly the two to three, four hours, five hours is an important uh, space to be able to fill now, but to be able to go to two to three to four or five days uh, is the game changer. And I know that with um, legislation that we were able to support uh, last couple of years ago, which established the Lithium Valley uh, committee that's looking at lithium mining in the Salton Sea area. It's the Eddie Ward Garcia bill. David Hochschild with CEC uh, is also providing leadership in that area. I think those are the kinds of areas that um, will help us as we look at uh, further and developing lithium in this state to help with the longevity uh, of battery storage. And I think that's obviously the goal and get us to where we need to be to make a big difference. 
Got it. Um, and Amisha, if, if you have more to add on uh, storage, feel free to jump in. But I also have another question that I can ask you. I don't know if you prefer to add on to the previous conversation. I can jump into the next thing. You can jump into the next. I They all covered that really well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to follow up on what you were talking about, about regionalization um, in your beginning remarks. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that? And, and from your perspective, you know, what you think California should be doing on that front? Yeah, so this is this is a conversation that Chair Holden, who is on this panel right now, has has helped lead in inside California for for several years um, now. Um, but what I what I think I can sort of provide is maybe a snapshot of sort of the activity that has been happening around this this conversation in the West. I mean, back in. 2017, 2018, when there was a when there was a bill that the chair Holden was uh, that introduced in the legislature, you know, there wasn't necessarily um, alignment around sort of the clean energy goals across the Western states. Right. But today, when you look at the map, you know, in addition to California's 100 percent clean goals, you have many, most of the, the broader West cementing either very aggressive RPS goals or already now have 100% clean goals on their books as well. So the, the West has broadly come into alignment on moving toward increasingly more renewables in their, in their resource portfolio. And, and many of them have now 100% clean goals in law and statute, which to me really changes the landscape here, right? Because we're now talking about how we all collectively can get to a 100% clean grid of the future. And, and that's why sort of the regional approach is, is that much more important, right? Because when we saw some of those extreme weather events, right, with the, with the extreme heat, that wasn't just impacting California, right? It was impacting our neighboring states. And they were also trying to pull these resources into their states to serve their load. And so we do have to think about how we can better function as a region and utilize our transmission assets in the best possible way so that we are delivering the renewables, the clean energy where it is needed most, where it makes the most sense, so that we also don't have excessive you know, renewables on the system that aren't, that aren't serving um, ratepayers in any given state. So it, at the end of the day, it's, it's the most affordable path for ratepayers. It's, the, in my opinion, um, the only way to actually truly achieve the decarbonization goals while also achieving all these other attributes, right, in terms of reliability, in terms of affordability, in terms of making sure that um, we are we are getting the renewables to where they need to go. And so, you know, I, I do think the landscape has shifted a bit. And, and we do have now a, a federal administration that is also really looking for the Western states to take the lead on this and, and really work toward a solution that can um, serve the West and that is by the West. And I think that is a real opportunity for California to, to sort of come back to the table and provide real leadership and work with the other states who are not, who are now also very aligned with those goals. And I, I would turn it over to the chair who probably has uh, more thoughts on this and can sort of expand on that. Well, well Amisha, I think you've used all my talking points. <laughs> you've covered it uh, about as thoroughly as uh, anyone could. I, and I appreciate that. Um, I, I'll, I'll just uh, add that, you know, when uh, 813, Assembly Bill 813 was introduced back in 17, um, it was sort of advancing a conversation around how to make our abilities to be more efficient, 
um, uh, with being an exporter of power when we need it to be. So we have, rather than curtailing uh, solar power, um, you've got other states where the sun has now gone down that you can now export uh, that solar power to those communities. And I think that just the efficiency of then being an importer when we need to be and an exporter makes it uh, a more efficient use of our resources. And it creates, as was pointed out, uh, a, one of the few concepts that's been talked about to get to a renewable goals in, in an efficient way, but doing it in a cost-efficient way. Um, I'll also say that one of the challenges at that time when the bill came up was the, the issue around governance. There were, there were several. Um, our labor uh, community had some concerns uh, that we'll continue to work with them on because they're going to be a major uh, part of the conversation because uh, this is always a, always a part of trying to make sure that creation of jobs and what that means to California's workforce, that that is uh, held uh, high in the conversation. Um, but we also uh, were dealing with the issue of governance. And, you know, we have a valuable asset in our uh, independent system operator. And the CalISO has uh, been viewed as a, a major uh, RTO for California, but also having the potential to do more. It's been outside of our outside of our borders, even as we speak. Um, but I think the idea is how do we grow it? And and given the fact that uh, we've we've got you know states now um, you know setting important uh, renewable goals that mirror California's, as was pointed out. Uh, as we've got a FERC that doesn't reflect an administration that's more leaning towards fossil fuels, it's now, you know, in line with how everyone else is thinking about the importance of renewable energy and, and, and sort of promoting that FERC is not our enemy anymore, uh, as is part of the conversation of wanting to see a regionalized uh, approach. Um, and then I think that given those kind of dynamics, the kind of changes that are happening, um, we come down to the, the central argument point or position that we need to continue to refine, and that's on governance. Um, how is the governance structure going to be established in such a way that Californians can feel comfortable that they're not sort of losing something in this uh, conversation, uh, but other states can feel that they're actually not, that they're actually equal partners or joint partners at the table? And through the um, energy imbalance market, which Stacy can talk a little bit more about in detail, it has sort of given us a, uh, a blueprint of how governance can work as we start to um, the spot market work to with these other states to kind of provide resources when they need it at a particular time, moving to a day ahead market uh, and growing that kind of governance structure that's been working with the EIM to EDAM, I think, or the day ahead market, I think gives us really um, a blueprint on how um, the states can work together efficiently, how each can benefit um, in a productive way, and how customers in each state will be able to have resources that are renewable presented to them uh, at, at, at prices that keep their costs uh, low. And I think that's the formation of something that I think is very valuable and is different than where we were in 17. And I, and, and I was at a conference a, a couple of months ago 
where legislators and other states are, are really embracing uh, this. And quite frankly, they're starting to run faster than California because, you know, there are other RTOs that are out there that would love to have these, these other states join their RTO as opposed to ours. And so it's very important that we not get to a place where uh, we move so slow that we're sort of uh, isolated at some point because other states have decided it's an important concept to link to. And now they've made some decisions that would not necessarily include California. So, um, but I'm, I'm very optimistic. I think that uh, the conversation is uh, picked up and there's a lot of change and dynamics, as Amisha said, that I think uh, set the, uh, the time is right uh, to pick it up again in California. And can, do you want to, yeah, go ahead and jump in. Yeah. And just jump in and th- thank you. I think um, both Assemblyman Holden and, and Amisha described the context very well. And and the energy imbalance market, as um, Assemblyman Holden said, is is really been a good testing ground for that sort of trust building and coordination amongst utilities and states, state regulators and, and, and the like. Um, to understand the value of these markets and, and this sort of regional approach um, and work on some of those governance issues. So the, the energy imbalance market was created in, in 2014 and uh, with stakeholders, um, we created a, uh, um, an EIM governing body that sits alongside of the board. And at, at first it had um, sort of delegated authority over some of those issues that were that were unique to that energy imbalance market that involved the other states. Um, just this past year, both the, our board of governors and the governing body, this, these two bodies, um, approved changes, sort of an evolution to that structure to allow shared authority over um, these energy imbalance market rules. And what that does is it really strengthens strengthens the bond between the two bodies, the Board of Governors and the EM Governing Body. It allows stakeholders to engage with both bodies sort of shared, and it it sort of develops that trust um, and uh, sort of strengthens the voices, as Chair Holden said, um, to, to show sort of an equal footing on these issues that they share, right? These are shared market constructs um, that all utilities are participating in. So it's a good step forward and we are looking forward to um, beginning the conversation on how that might evolve to accept the day ahead market construct. And we think that that's a great model to go from. But um, long-term, as was said, uh, that the overall governance structure um, will need to, again, evolve uh, if we want to again, capture the full benefits of a regional market, regional transmission organization. There is what we call competition. We've never had competition here. We haven't needed it. But the, the reason it's, it's competitive is because there's value in the shared um, diversity and benefits that come from this, from a wider market, right? That is, that is, the, <laughs> that is the crux of the issue, right? It's more reliable, it's more cost-effective, and it's, it can happen faster. Um, you can meet these goals faster. So we're keeping an eye on, on, on that, but really think that the day ahead market is a um, great next step, which we've gotten a lot of support for both here internal to California, as well as um, uh, throughout the West. And 
Carla, I'll give you an opportunity in case you want to jump in um, before we go on to the next question. So perhaps it's my turn to say that I think the other panelists have covered things well. So I'll just add that um, we've seen cost savings and reliability benefits for our customers from the integration that we already have. And as Stacy highlighted, we're further going to have uh, with utilities and uh, other service areas. And so that's really our focus as a utility. You know, what are the benefits for our customers? And I do see a lot of real possibility for benefits for them. And again, as we're taking on this unprecedented task of um, you know, 100% decarbonization, I think we've got to consider all the tools available. And so I appreciate that we're looking at this issue and really seeing um, how it can benefit our customers. Um, and Assemblyman, you had mentioned um, a little earlier in the conversation, I know you mentioned a bill related to uh, lithium that um, you know you were anticipating would come up soon. I'm wondering if you can talk about what other like grid related legislation you're anticipating um, or perhaps that you're you're going to introduce for the next legislative session or year. Um, and also, um, just because Tim mentioned that that editorial in the B the other day, um, I'm wondering if you think there's an appetite in the legislature for, uh, you know, breaking up PG&E or, or cracking down there. Just curious about your thoughts on, on legislation for the upcoming year. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Um, first, I'll just comment on legislation that uh, we were able to address this year that uh, was fo- focusing on offshore, offshore wind uh, development. And, you know, I think that that has, it's been studied by the CEC, the uh, Energy Commission for a period of time now, and, and there's real value in it. And certainly the Biden administration has identified a couple of locations along the coastline that could be um, cited for transmission for offshore wind. So that gives us another uh, opportunity to explore a, a procuring a renewable energy that goes towards greening the grid. And, and we certainly believe that there's a, a viability there. Uh, it's still sort of on the front end of where, um, how we would be able to do this, but I think the technology is uh, certainly in place. Um, we understand through looking at uh, off, uh, offshore wind um, off the coast of Portugal, which has the same kind of um, you know, deep, waters around the their their country as we do around our state and it drops off very quickly how to support that and and, and actually make it viable and uh, but it looks um, like it's incredibly doable so that's legislation that uh, is has gone forward governor signed it and um, the 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 plane is taking off in that race in that respect um, and so I think, and as in the lithium conversation and the development of lithium mining and how that could be used for storage, as I pointed out, is again, another tool that helps uh, green the grid. Um, as it relates to uh, PG&E and breaking up PG&E, it's not a new conversation. Uh, it's not a new topic. Uh, when we were looking at um, the issues around uh, the instability at the time of of PG&E and the fact that they were in bankruptcy. Um, and as what was pointed out, one of the, the, the drivers that caused them to be in that position was incredible liability around the, uh, the impacts of wildfires and the devastation of those wildfires and responsibility for those wildfires and 
the cost associated with um, addressing uh, the impacts that that presented. And, you know, and now, as uh, Carla pointed out, they're from 15% of high fire risk area to 50%. So I guess the question is, you know, you, you change the name on the jersey, the issues still remain. Um, you know, you still have liability out there, a potential of, for liability. You still have um, uh, challenges to meet the uh, uh, hardening of the grid, uh, the, the resiliency that needs to be in place, the vegetation management that has to be uh, achieved. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, the ideas, and I, you know, I get it, but the, I don't know what really ultimately changes other than either the government represents ownership, you break it off into smaller pieces, who wants to now take, I mean, before it was like, who wants to take the 15% that's high risk? Now it's 50% that's high risk. So um, again, you know, I don't, I think that there's just a, a, a focus on how can we continue to hold uh, PG and accountable for meeting the, the, the stated goals that we think are important uh, for them to do what's necessary to protect uh, the, the, uh, the grid and also the people who are living in these exposed areas. Um, but, uh, and, and then just to continue to hold the, for us to do our job to hold them accountable and set the standard high to do so. Uh, I've yet to see a proposal um, that would basically change the, the trajectory of what this um, utility is having to deal with. And, and so with that in, in mind, certainly we're always open to hear new and creative and clever ideas, but, but um, given the, the, the size of this utility and the territory that it represents, um, it, it would be a major, major undertaking to try to shift that uh, into new hands to try to deal with this, the same existing uh, risk and liability that, that would go attached to it. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to chime in on that as well. And I appreciate hearing from uh, Chair Holden on this. You know, I'll just say that we take very seriously the calls from customers, policymakers to be the utility that people need us to be during this unprecedented time. And I came to pg e five months ago much of the senior leadership did this year as well, because we heeded that call. And I can tell you, you know, over the last five months, what I've observed is that my coworkers are working every day to make things safe and to make them right. And we're seeing the progress. Um, we've already had this year 50% reduction in CPUC reportable emissions relative to the last three-year average. And that's even when you account for the drought. It was mentioned earlier, we are in uh, following our wildfire mitigation plan. And we also do things above and beyond that when the situation calls for it. So this summer, for example, we were nimble when we saw the impact of the drought. We announced this summer uh, an expedited plans to do undergrounding in the most um, you know, high fire risk areas. But in addition to actually what we're doing, I want to call it how we're doing it, because I think this is really important. It's about like what the culture changes and the hard work we're actually doing within the organization. So one of the things that our new CEO brought to the company is implementation of lean. This is a methodology and approach to work management, to visibility, for problem solving, problem identification, 
that first started in the auto industry, right? And it really gets to your ability to have good quality. And the hallmark of that is making sure that teams are meeting on a daily basis, understanding immediately what is the status of things. We've got all these work plans. Are we on track? Are we off track? If we're off track, how do we get back on track? So across our organization every day, teams are having 15 minute meetings where they're looking at visuals and can quickly see how we are doing. And then if there are issues that need collective solving, they get escalated to the next level. And so between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m., we have over 1,200 of these meetings happening, these daily operating reviews. So at 1030, I'm in a meeting with my colleagues and issues have been escalating. And I think this gets to one of the concerns that folks have had, which is, are we too big to solve these problems, right? And that's what we're doing is making sure that we have this better communication system. You know, it's called like a heartbeat, this constant heartbeat. So we're all rowing in the same direction. I did crew for a short period of time in graduate school. And if you're not rowing in the right direction, you're not going anywhere. So that has been our focus. And if we are able to do that, when we do that, as we do that, then we're able to take advantage of the benefits of being a large system and having that diversification of risk. It's just like the regionalization conversation we had. There is some strength in diversity. We just have to make sure that we are coordinated. And that's what I'm committed to. That's what the whole PG&E team is committed to. And I, um, I know we could talk about this for longer, but I do want to move on. We have a, an audience question that I want to make sure we get to. Um, and so the question is, transmission planning and approval takes a decade or more to achieve. Most of California's transmission planning is targeted at short-term needs. This met our needs in the past, but does not now. Failure to address transmission now may mean it is not available when we try to add vast amounts of renewable energy in the 2030 to 2045 timeline. So how can we fix this broken planning paradigm. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to, to jump in on that. I, I would start. Oh, go ahead, Stacey. Okay, I'll, I'll start quickly. But um, the, the, um, the, the, the person who submitted that question is right. <laughs> it is a challenge. And we're trying to uh, solve that across the board, certainly in coordination with um, the state agencies and, uh, and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. But it, as as example, we we did get some great news this month where the um, it's called Ten Westlink, which is a transmission line that was approved. Um, like I said, November fourth, it was a hundred twenty five mile line. We started that project in our process, which means it started before that in twenty thirteen. So it, it's taken a long time to get through the process, and between then and now, so much has changed, right? The value of that project is now, you know, how many times um, because of so, of so much that has changed. So, yes, I think we're all striving to meet um, that challenge. At the ISO, um, we implemented a 20-year outlook, which is new. We usually do a 10-year plan updated every every year. But we're now looking, trying to look further out and really using the resource plans as the impetus for this look, right? So we need to know what resources are going to be built when and where, and that can give us that longer term lookout um, of where we need that transmission to come from. So absolutely, I think we all recognize this urgency because of the length of time um, to get these projects approved and then built, right? The siting and all of the stuff that we, we all know is just gonna get harder as urban growth boundaries continue to, to grow and that kind of thing. So um, I just want to agree with the person who submitted that comment and know that we are 
it is a number one focus for our transmission planning group and certainly um, something we, we want plan to address. We're also trying to address that in the context of the regional conversation, because like we all said, a lot of the resources will come from more remote places and probably other states as well, at least in part. And so we need to coordinate um, with our partners in the West. I would just add that um, we're probably missing one party to this conversation that should be on this panel, and that's a representative from the CPUC. Um, but I think that it's important to, to note, and I don't disagree with the premise of the question either, and I, I think that certainly there is um, a need and a sense of um, expediency around uh, getting our transmission infrastructure uh, in place and integrated and upgraded. Um, and if we're going to be even more efficient and moving our renewables around the state, you know, I'm a big proponent of regionalization clearly, but if we, we can do more to be more efficient within our own state and in terms of um, how we transmit um, through the power lines, our renewable energy and the efficiency that that represents. I'll also note that, uh, so, so I think we need to continue to work with the CPUC. We need to continue to put, um, uh, mindful guidance over uh, their process and how they're moving along. I think that, um, you know, we want to make sure that that they're being as uh, responsive. I know under the current leadership, they have really made some major strides in that direction. Um, but we're very uh, uh, hopeful that we can start to see uh, some, some uh, increased movement in this regard, and especially in light of the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was just signed, which is bringing resources to California to improve our transmission line. So among other things. So I think that this is a, a very important time to really focus on how we now move forward because we'll have more resources to, to target transmission uh, line and infrastructure improvements. And so to that end, we wanna make sure that the administrative part of this approval process is uh, situated in a way that they can be uh, nimble and responsive and and efficient in terms of getting permits out and, and getting these projects up and going. Right. And Amisha, in the last like 30 seconds that we have here, is there anything you, you want to add on to that? Uh, Chair Holden actually covered it. I was going to link just sort of the infrastructure package, but thank you. All right, great. Well, I think we're we're just about out of time here, um, but I really appreciate all of you taking the time to be on this panel. I think this was a great discussion. Um, it was a broad topic, so I really appreciate you guys, um, you know, diving in there. So um, I don't know, should I, I turn it back over to Tim or Grace? Sure. Uh, Sophia, thank you so much for moderating this and all of our panelists, thank you so much for participating. Uh, and we will be making this available as a video and also as a podcast. We'll get those posted at the Capital Weekly website as soon as we can, probably be a couple days. But uh, if anyone wants to share this with our colleagues or revisit this discussion, uh, we will have it there. Thank you again. And uh, I hope that our audience will join us again in about a half hour. We will have our keynote for today's event from Wade Crowfoot, the Secretary of the California Natural Resources Agency. Sophia, panelists, thank you again. Very interesting discussion, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Can I just add one thing, by the way, for someone? Oh. Uh, Chris, we did try, and Tim can back me up here. We tried, uh, very, we gave some due diligence to get the CPUC on this panel. <laughs> That's and true. Uh, so yeah. it's not, it wasn't for lack of trying. So No, I, I appreciate that. No, I've just... 
stating the obvious, but no, I appreciate your efforts to, to make that happen. So we'll get next time. Thank you guys all very much. It's great discussion. And thank you so much for joining us. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.